Take your Bibles and turn to John 11. John chapter 11. It's really hard to know how to express to you what I'm about to say so that you hear what I mean and not what you might be prone to hear, but I'm going to give it a shot anyways. Over the last several weeks, I've heard from so many of you with specific comments about how God has used John 10 and John 11 in your life. And it's not just been one or two. That's fairly normal in the body of Christ, which is good. The body of Christ should be growing through the feeding of the word. But the amount lately has been overwhelming to me. And it's not about me. It's obvious that God has been meeting with us, I believe, in a a unique and special way through the preaching of this book and this text. And in particular, as we come to the affliction and the sorrow and the loss that Martha and Mary felt over their brother's death, they show us the assurances and the promises that Christ alone can give. That's been so helpful to me and my faith. It's encouraged and built up my faith, and I think it has yours, at least to those of you who've talked with me. And Just another instance in which, beloved, we need to give praise to God. He, he has been at work in our body, and that is not required. He does not have to do that. That is an extension of his kindness, and he deserves all the praise. So as we find these assurances, as we mine them out of the scriptures, we see that they're, they're actually precious stones that line the wall of our fortress and our refuge. And while the storms and gale winds of affliction rage outside, it's not as though we don't feel their pain, we do, but we know we are ultimately safe in this well-built house of the promises of Christ. We find another of those, another set of those in John 11 in our text this morning. So far in this text, we've been in the waiting room, waiting and lingering and preluding up unto the climax. Today, we enter into the patient's room. We find the patient entirely and completely dead. We have been through the text drawing closer to the tomb of Lazarus. We've seen tension building as he as Christ draws closer to this tomb. But this morning, we get to discover the end of the story. And I know you know it. I I know you know what happens. You know the end of it. But I pray that we can see with, with fresh eyes of faith how Christ works this miracle and how that impacts and affects how we think about our own affliction. Part of why I think so many of us have been so gripped by this text is because it is so raw and so real. All of Scripture is. All of Scripture reads you like no other book, helps you understand your own reality like no other book known to man. But this text is uniquely laid before us the the difficulty of sorrow in a sin-cursed world. And then coupled with that, it has pointed us to the kindness and the compassion and the mercy of Christ that we have not before seen so clearly. This dark cloud of, of everything going on that hangs over this chapter is that Lazarus is dead. He's gone the way of sinful man. The curse has finally caught up with him and he lies dead in the tomb. And no one doubts that Lazarus is dead. But everyone doubts that Jesus can actually do anything about it. Do not miss that when we come to verse 38. No one doubts he's dead. Everyone doubts that Jesus can do a thing about it. But the closer we move to the tomb, as we saw last week, the greater we see assurances for our faith coming out in the words and actions of Christ. These assurances are not just for Martha and Mary and ultimately Lazarus, but they are for you, for me, for every follower of Christ. Do you remember what some of those assurances have been? As we've walked through the chapter and I've got a slide, they're all going to be there and it's a lot to take in, but I think you should see that John 11 is full full of assurances for you as you face the afflictions of this life. We saw, first of all, in the first six verses that every stroke of providence is directed by God's love for us, and it's determined to grow our faith, and it's designed and destined for the glory of God. That third assurance is the one we'll see as the end parenthesis on chapter 11 this morning, that that will be fulfilled, God will be glorified. Then we saw that 
Christ will not crush you. And we saw that particularly in his handling of Martha in her grief. And instead, Christ will convince you. He will affirm to you what needs to be known to your wavering heart. Namely, I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, though you die, yet you shall live, he says. Not only will he convince you, but then he will challenge you. He will call you to believe that, not just in your head, but trust it with every fiber of your being. As he says to Martha, do you believe this? Then last week we saw that Jesus was moved by Mary's grief, and we can be convinced he'll be moved by our grief as well. He's not untouched by our infirmities. He is deeply moved, and he is also greatly troubled by our grief. And we saw that meant that he is angry about it. He is indignant towards it. He is compelled to do something about it. But in his doing something about it, he is not discompassionate. He does not lose his love for you in his solution to your grief. Rather, as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, he loves us in our grief and carries us gently through our grief to the other side. Those are amazing assurances from the the one sent from God in John 11. This man of sorrows who knows grief came as the resurrection and the life. Now in the seven verses before us, we see the greatest assurances of all. We come to the tomb, we smell the odor of a dead body four days in the tomb. We're confronted with the ugliness and vileness of death. And we see here the greatest assurances of all. As you know, Christ overpowers and overcomes it and gives us our greatest hope. Starting in verse 38, the text reads, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Father in heaven, we praise you for the glory and the power displayed in this text. These are not just words on a page, but representative of a real Christ who worked a real miracle as a real sign to point us to our real and only hope. We ask that you would expose this truth to our hearts, confirm and commit it to us, assure us, especially those of us who are struggling the most with the afflictions and troubles and trials of this life. Father, would you meet with us as you have in recent weeks? Would you meet with us again in these moments and teach us from your word and encourage and assure our faith? Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Over the many years of ministry, I've been asked to officiate many, many funerals, as you can imagine. A good number of those funerals have been along the way for unbelieving families, or maybe for families who are largely unbelieving but have one or two who are believers, or they are a Christian family, in quotes, and they want a Christian pastor to to do a Christian service. And so they, through the funeral home, will get a hold of, of me, and they'll ask me to come and do the funerals. And I must tell you, it is, it is a strange experience. It's a strange experience because those who don't know Christ don't know what to do with death. That's what astounds me when I walk into a room every time. I know it. I'm prepared for it now. I've had enough of these experiences to know it's coming. But when I walk into that funeral parlor where this unbelieving family is gathered around this lost loved one, I am astounded every time that they don't know how to handle that moment. And there's kind of this nervous hilarity about the scene. As they share memories and they they try to kind of laugh off their grief and there's tears here and there, but largely they're, they're trying to make the situation less heavy 
than it is. Remember, remember several years ago, Peterson's called me and asked me to officiate a funeral for one of these families. And they had some kind of Christian background and they, they wanted, or they at least had someone making decisions who wanted a Christian pastor. So they asked me to do it. I, of course, immediately agreed because where better to preach the gospel in our culture than in that spot? So of course I'm going to say yes. And I go and meet with the family. And as I sit in the living room of the widow and the son of the man who passed away, I remember as we talked through the service and I explained a little bit of how things would go and what I would do and kind of whittled down what would be in the service. And I think she, she understood that I was going to talk about Jesus and death and eternal life. And she looks at me straight in the eyes and gets my attention and says, you're not going to pe- preach about hell and, and death and judgment, are you? Well, yeah, um, yes, I am, actually. I don't remember exactly how I answered her. I tried to be as gracious and kind, but affirming of that reality as possible. Explain to her that this is why I do these funerals, though I did not know this man. I know the, the Christ who is the only hope for men like him. And as I explained that to her, I said, I, I, won't, I won't be throwing stuff from the pulpit. I won't be spitting fire. I won't be casting anyone into hell in the moment. But I will speak the truth, hopefully in love, and tell them what the Bible says about life and death and the life to come. Well, in some amazing act of God, she still let me be the pastor for the funeral, probably because there wasn't much option at that point. I get to the funeral, and I remember distinctly still, I can see the room in my mind's eye. As I, the service progresses and few people get up and talk about this man and, and they're sharing these memories that are fairly light and flippant and kind of just move them along in, in their remembrances and you know, help them feel better about what happened, that he's up in heaven doing his hobby with other people and he's doing it better than he ever has and stuff like that. I'm, I'm just churning in my soul knowing that I have the privilege to tell them the truth. As I stand at the pulpit, I proclaimed to them that death is the result of our own rebellion against God, our maker and our creator. And that death, which is physical first in experience, can become eternally that way spiritually. That you can spend eternity separated from life and joy and the blessing and peace of God in a place called hell. If you don't repent, turn from your rebellion against God and believe in the one God sent to take away your sins by the shedding of his blood, the Lord Jesus Christ. As I proclaimed that truth, I remember specifically one or two folks in the congregation who were audibly opposed, or visibly, excuse me, opposed, not audibly, but visibly opposed to what I was saying. Shaking their heads turning in their chairs, uncomfortable in what was going on, speaking to their neighbor quietly under their breath about how they disagreed with what I was saying. The reality was, as I blew the wind of truth against their house of cards, they did not like it. I was proclaiming what the scriptures say about death and hell and eternal life, and they did not like their charade to be exposed. Friend, death is a terrible reality. It's awful. And we do no one any favors by lightening the mood and acting like it is all going to be okay. Jesus wept with Mary and spoke assurances to Martha in the face of Lazarus' death. And, And yet at this moment, as we start into verse 38, Lazarus still lays in the tomb. Dead for four days, and not only had he been dead, but humanly speaking, all hope was now dead. Jesus draws closer to the tomb, and he overpowers the the death of Lazarus. And as he does that, we see more assurances that stand as rocks in this strong tower of refuge. That we know our God is for us, that he loves us, that he will glorify himself through us, and he will one day bring us safely home. All the other assurances that I've listed on that screen are building to these three. 
These will not be shocking to you. They are all throughout the text, but if the, these three are not true, the rest fall apart. The first assurance is that Christ overpowers death. Christ overpowers death. And that's a, a statement that is cliche in the church. We celebrate every Sunday the resurrection of our own Lord and how he conquers death through it. But you must let that settle upon your soul with the heaviness that will produce joy afresh and anew. Jesus, deeply moved by grief with Mary over the reality of death in our last section, is now deeply moved again as he draws closer to the tomb. This tomb, John tells us, was a natural cave. It wasn't hewn out of the rock like Jesus' tomb will be in John 20. It's a, a cave that is natural, and as you enter into the tomb, they likely would have made shelves in the cave. They would have carved those in so that they could add dead bodies into this family tomb. And once your body decayed enough, they would open up the stone that lay in front of it, obviously to protect and to conceal the decaying bodies. When that got to a position of decomposition enough where they could remove the bones and make room for another dead body, they would go in and put those bones into an ossuary, a a bone box, and leave that in the cave underneath the bottom shelf. This happened over and over and over again in the heritage and history of a family. So Lazarus is in his family tomb, his family cave. And he has been there for four days. This rock seals the entrance to obviously keep grave robbers out and animals out of the tomb, but also, you must know, it's there to keep the awful realities of death in, to keep them concealed and covered. It should not be missed by us that the The awful realities of death are rightly, in a dignified way, put behind closed doors. As they were in first century, they are in our day as well. It's those awful realities that Jesus is on the scene to overpower and overthrow. Deeply moved again in verse 38, meaning that he, in the depth of his soul, is compelled to do war with death. He has, came, he has come as the conquering king to overthrow sin and death and hell, and here is a main battle. And like a champion, he moves ever closer to the front line of the battlefield, compelled to do business with death that so far looks like it has won. He stands in front of the cave and is here confronted with the wavering belief of Martha, nay, I even may say unbelief of Martha. Ever the nuts and bolts kind of lady, right? Always dealing with the facts. Some of you are like her. I think I tend to be like her. Analytical of the situation. Thinking of what might happen if that happens and what might not happen if that doesn't happen. What will be the fallout of those decisions and analyzing and critiquing everything. This is what she's doing. She's dealing with the the analytics of the situation and she just knows, Lord, if you move that stone, oh boy, no, no. Please do not do that. Apparently Martha had smelled this before. Apparently she had some exposure to the the nauseating, stomach-churning reality of a body decaying after four days. So much so that in the old King James English, she says, Lord, he stinketh. Probably with an English accent. I don't know. He stinks. Leave him in there. The word she uses for odor is the same word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Exodus 8, 14. You remember what's going on in Exodus 8? The ten plagues that God brought upon the nation of Egypt. Remember what the third plague was? It's the plague of the frogs. Frogs are nasty. Frogs stink. Dead frogs stink worse. You know what the text says? That plague ended, they all died, and they piled them up into heaps in the land, and that text uses our word and says, the land stank. Get that smell in your nostrils to get an idea of what Martha means when she says, Lord, he stinketh. He's been in the tomb for four days. It's a putrid, gut-wrenching odor that Martha's talking about here. It's so bad that she felt compelled to interrupt our Lord's grief and whatever he's planning to do and object to him opening the tomb. And beloved, you must know that is the reality of death. It decays and destroys and causes a terrible stench. And not just the stench that you smell with your nose. 
the stench that permeates every part of your life. Scientists tell us that within minutes of your own physical death, that the process of decomposition begins. Forgive me for sharing these, but I want to lay on your heart the reality of of death, the nastiness of it. And there's a lot I'm not telling you, so give me that uh, as I explain this to you. Your blood obviously stops flowing because your heart stops pumping. Oxygen stops being delivered, but the activity in the corpse is, is quite active. In fact, scientists refer to it as its own ecosystem. It begins its own process of decomposition. Enzymes begin to digest the membranes of oxygen-deprived cells. Damaged blood cells pour out of their broken vessels in a rush of movement. They settle in the capillaries and other small blood vessels, and they trigger discoloration on the skin's surface. The bacteria that is always in your body and is mostly kept by your digestive system in check by your immune system helps you live and process the food you put in your gut, gives you the protein and energy you need to live and thrive and survive. When you die, those bacteria turn on you because you're no longer giving them food. There's no longer an immune system keeping them in check and, and they now start feeding on, excuse me, but the internal tissue of the dead body. One scientific study discovered that within 58 hours after death, so just over two days, the bacteria of the gut had already left the intestines and the stomach and had made it to the liver, the spleen, the heart, and the brain within two days and 10 hours. As you know, if you've had the experience recently of smelly, old, decaying food and the bacteria that infiltrates and starts decomposing that food, you know the stench of that bacterial work is awful. There's almost nothing worse. So now you know why Martha says, Lord, uh uh-uh, this is not a good idea. I don't know what you're about to do, Lord, but don't do that. Christ approaches the tomb, though, and he says, Take away the stone. Think with me just for a minute about why Jesus wanted to move the stone out of the way. He doesn't need to do this. In a minute, he's going to, with a loud voice, say, Lazarus, come out. And a dead body that is in the throes of decomposition has no hope of life by any human mechanism is brought back to life by the words of a man. Apparently, that man, Jesus, has the power to say to a dead stone, move it. Or to say to a dead body raised to life, come through it. Right? He does not need the stone moved. There's two reasons I believe that Jesus says to them, take away the stone. The first is so that the crowd would have no doubt about the death of Lazarus. Now listen, they are already very sure. But to put it beyond doubt, to put it outside the realm of question, so that no one in all of history can ever say, you know, Lazarus wasn't actually dead in the tomb. That's not a thing. You know why that's not a thing? Because he was dead in the tomb and everyone smelt it when they took away the stone. They're going to remember their gag reflex when that odor penetrated their nostrils. And they're going to tell that story of that dead man brought back to life. The second reason that Jesus says move that stone is because he will not use his power to do anything for us that he expects us to do ourselves. They could move the stone, but they could not raise Lazarus from the grave. Jesus could do both, but he is not going to use his divine power to trump and overthrow human ability. And there is a deep lesson for us here. In our affliction and in our grief, God will not do for us those things that he has clearly told us to do. It's in those moments of affliction and grief and sorrow and sadness that we want God just to come in, sweep in, and and fix it all. And one day, gloriously, by his power, it will all be fixed. But along the way, there are things he has asked us to do, means and methods by which he has promised to give us comfort 
and assurance and to strengthen our faith so that we do not fall and stumble in our faith. So he has given us the prescribed means and methods of the word, of the spirit applying the word, of the church ministering the word and sharing in our grief and affliction and comforting us with the comfort they themselves have been comforted with in past affliction. So beloved, when affliction hits you, you can, you can pull out of life and stop doing all the prescribed methods and means God has given for you to do. And I will tell you that will exacerbate your sorrow. That will increase your affliction. Because God's not going to just go in and, and zap that all and make the, all that pain go away so you can start functioning back in the ways he expects you to function. Now I say that knowing how hard that is. Watching my brother wrestle to get to church and to serve and to minister and to be with people. I can tell you that the greatest thing for his grief has been pressing into the prescribed means that God has given, has told him to do, whether he's grieving or not, so that he can be faithful to the Lord and be encouraged in his faith. I've never seen my brother walk more closely with the Lord than in these moments of affliction. And I would say, may it be true of you as well. Because he says to you, take away that stone. There's much to trust the Lord with. There's also much for you to do in the face of affliction empowered by his grace. Then look at verses 30, 43 and 44 where Jesus overpowers death in the case of Lazarus. He cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. He obviously does not need to do that, does he? He could raise Lazarus with one simple move of his will in his mind, right? He could just decide that's going to happen and Lazarus is coming out. And he chooses to speak into the grave, into the tomb with his loud voice. And he, he speaks to choose loudly so everyone hears what he says. Unlike the, the necromancers and the mediums, those who supposedly talk to death, dead people, who chirp and mutter and speak their incantations and their charms and their spells, like Isaiah 8 describes, they chirp and mutter. Unlike them, Jesus speaks loudly and clearly. You couldn't miss it. He wants everyone to know that what happens next when you see Lazarus walk out of that tomb, you need to know that there was, there was nothing mystical bringing that about. I didn't bring together with, with my magic powers, waving my hands and speaking some weird spell, bringing together the powers of nature, fire, wind, earth, and water, and, and making it all come together to bring him back to life and flashing my, my tractor beam of power into the grave, and boom, he comes back to life. Like some Marvel film. No, he speaks clearly, loudly, and it happens. Nothing can overcome death like this. This is how God always chooses to work in creating life in this world and in recreating life in this world, I might add. When you think back to Genesis 1, you read of the Spirit of God moving upon the unformed earth and what happens next in Genesis 1? God formed the earth and brought order and life to it and how did he do that? He spoke. One of the most repeated phrases in Genesis 1 is, and God said. And God said said. Let there be light, and boom, there was light. Let there be land, boom, there was land. This is God's self-prescribed method of creation and recreation, and it is no different in our text, and it is no different in the crevices of the tomb of your sinful reality either. John 11 is a picture for us of the spiritual life-giving power of the word of the Lord. The dead soul is entombed in the grave of sin and is captured by spiritual death and the stench is awful. Spiritual rigor mortis has set in and spiritual decay has run deep. The, the man or woman caught by sin is, is dead, dead, dead. Corruption has, 
has run its course and the stench, spiritually speaking, is beyond tolerance. Now we see in our Romans 1 society where we have objected against the reality of God and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator that that stench of sin now is on center stage to be applauded and celebrated and sung about and rejoiced in by our culture. And friend, that stinks. That reeks in the nostrils of God. And it is into this spiritual death, these entombed souls, that God in his kindness proclaims his word and says, come out. Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It's the word that does the work to give you ears to hear a soul revived unto eternal life. The only thing that can fix your spiritual death is the authoritative word of God applied to you by the Spirit of God. This is why Peter describes our spiritual rebirth in 1 Peter 1 by saying that eternal life is being brought to us through the agent of the imperishable seed of the living and abiding word of God. Christ speaks and the dead Lazarus is brought forth to life. God speaks into your soul and brings forth faith and belief and eternal life in Christ. It's an impossible thing to think about the things that happened in this moment when Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. Four days worth of decomposition in the physical ecosystem of death is overturned at a moment's notice. His soul that had gone to be in Abraham's bosom in paradise with the Lord is brought back. Crossing the chasm of realities back into the human and physical reality and his once dead life is brought into and back to life. Beloved, this is a great assurance. Your greatest trials and your most bitter providences are those caused by death. But if you know Christ as Lord, your Savior, then this death stands no chance in his presence. He one day will completely overpower and overcome all of death's dark realities. You feel the the tremors of that death coming in your own body and in your own life. You see it and feel it and experience it in the lives of those you know and love. And the promise, the assurance of this text is that that will not have the final say if you are in Christ. He will overpower and overcome it as your Savior and your Lord. Lazarus, however, is not the perfect fulfillment of that and our rock of promise for that truth, is he? Because Lazarus isn't technically resurrected. He's actually just revived to his pre-illness state. He's brought back into whatever life he had before he fell ill and died. And, And even more than that, he's brought back into life in the stinky grave clothes in the tomb. Thankfully, none of us have to go through what he went through. As Lazarus is called out of the tomb, he is stumbling along with those grave clothes as we see in verses 43 and 44. And is, as you know, by the more evidence for the, the reality that he was dead. Everyone knew he was when he went in there, but when he comes out and he's dressed in the grave clothes that he would have gone in with, they're even more convinced he went in dead and came out alive. This is not a charade. This is not some some sleight of hand by this Jesus. He was dead and now lives. There's a greater reason why John gives you this detail of Lazarus coming out with his grave clothes on and saying to those seeing him, unbind him and loose him. He's telling you this because he wants to draw a contrast between what Lazarus experiences and what Jesus experiences in chapter 20. After he dies and is raised to life, that resurrection is our solid hope. Lazarus is resurrected, brought back to life, and he's, he's revived to mortal life. He's, he is alive, but he's groping blindly in the tomb, trying to find the exit, can't see a thing, bound by claws, stumbling along, 
trying to figure out where the opening is and not knowing what to do next. He brings his grave clothes out with him and frankly, he's going to need them again. They're going to have to use those or others to wrap his body one more time. But in all of this, as a mighty display of God's power, isn't enough for us. It pales in comparison to the the greater victory over death that Christ himself will accomplish in chapter 20. And I don't want to steal the thunder of that sermon in chapter 20, but as Jesus comes out of the tomb, you know what happens. Does he come out with grave clothes on? Does he need the stone moved for him? Does he need anyone speaking into the tomb to say, Jesus, come out? No, he accomplishes it by his own power, leaving his grave clothes neatly folded in the grave, in the tomb, because he'll never need them again. He is resurrected to what Paul calls a spiritual body, a real and true physical body, but one that is, is now glorified spiritually. It's a body that can eat and drink and maintains the scars of crucifixion, is physically present with others, apparently looks very similar to other people's physical bodies, yet in some glorified state, and yet it's a a body that can walk through walls and appear and vanish in an instant. It's a body that will never die, and it's the resurrection of Christ that is our greatest assurance in the face of death. So while he gives you a glimpse in chapter 11 of his power over death, see this as a tremor of the greater earthquake to come, the full victory given in Christ in John chapter 20. Second assurance, Christ can be trusted. These will go fast, these last two. Christ can be trusted in the face of our affliction. That assurance is seen in verses 39 to 42. The struggle of Martha is the struggle of faith before the miracle. She believes that Jesus is the Messiah, but she obviously is not sure what that means, right? She knows generally what that means. She knows in theological concept what that means, but she doesn't know what that means right in her moment of affliction and pain. And so as she says to Jesus, what are you thinking and taking away the stone? She is assuming she knows better than her Messiah with how to handle her affliction. Did you hear that? This is where our faith wavers in the hardest of times, isn't it? Lord, I think I know better than you how to do this. Whatever that next thing is, Lord, it would go better this way. Lord, what are you thinking moving that stone? No, no, I have a better way forward here. She was struggling to trust her Messiah. Jesus' response to her in verse 40 is essentially, Martha, listen, you can trust me. I know what I'm doing. If you believe, you will see the glory of God. If Martha will simply submit her heart and her will, her limited understanding of her own grief to her Lord, she can be assured, as Jesus says, that he will take care of it. So I ask you, what what but Lord statements have you put before him in your affliction? What questions have you asked him in, in the throes of your sorrow and your pain? And it's not wrong to ask them, let me be clear. Jesus does not condemn her for her sinfulness, does he? He does not rebuke her and refuse to associate with her. He patiently, lovingly, and compassionately answers her question. He says, Martha, didn't I tell you if you would believe, you will see the glory of God. So maybe yours is, but Lord, we had so many things yet undone. Lord, our family needed him or her. Lord, we can't wait for you to act. The grief is too great. The pain is too much. Martha is met here with the assurance you also need to be met with. Jesus can be trusted. You know what they do then. They take away the stone and that overwhelming putrid aroma permeates every nose in that place. People cover their faces, I I assume, as they try to stop themselves from embarrassing themselves in that moment. What did Jesus do? As they're all doubled over in the 
the awful reality of death, what does Jesus do? Verses 41 and 42, he lifts his eyes to heaven and he speaks to the Father. He prays to the Father in, in the face of the most awful reality of the human condition under sin. When mankind has no answers, when there's, there's no human solution to that moment, there, there are potential human solutions to cancer. There are potential human solutions to heart disease. There are potential human solutions to digestive disorders. There are potential human solutions to all these other problems. There are no human solutions to death. We don't even try because we know we can't do it. In that moment, when all human hope is lost and they all smell it in their nose, what does Jesus do? He prays to the Father. What he prays is a prayer of thankfulness that God has heard him, that his Father has heard him. He didn't need to do this. He had raised others from the, the tomb, from the grave, without praying. But here he prays because he wants them to know that he is here on assignment from his Father. That he is one with the Father in will and in action and in deed. That he is doing the works the Father sent him to do. So chapter 5, he said this. He said, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Then he goes on to say a few verses later, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. And he prays here right now at this very human moment so that those who are there will hear and understand that Jesus is God in the flesh. One with the Father, his representative on earth to do his work. So as their noses fill with the stench of death, his eyes turn upward and pray to the Father. What blessed assurance is here for you, friend. What comfort is to be found in the man of sorrows who knows your grief and who is also one with the Father. He doesn't just know your grief and not have an ear with the one who rules over all. He knows your grief and he has a direct line of access as his son. And so his mediation for you in the deepest, darkest struggle of your affliction can and should be trusted, don't you think? If all of that is true, don't you think he can be trusted and should be trusted. Isn't this why Paul in, in 2 Timothy 1, as he wrote his last letter, right before his death, when the letter in which he'll say, I fought the good fight, I've kept the faith, I've finished my course, and I'm ready to die for my Lord. As he starts the letter, he says he has been proclaiming the goodness of the glory of Christ who has authority over sin and death and hell. And because of that, he is enduring persecution, he goes on to say in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 1. And then he says, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. He is suffering unto death for the gospel itself. And he says, even in that deep affliction, I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able. That is your assurance. Christ can be trusted. Third, last, climactic assurance. God will be glorified. God will be glorified. That's what Jesus promises to Martha in verse 40. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you'd see the glory of God? We don't have a record of him actually saying that to Martha. He said something like that in verse four when he said to his disciples this, Illness is not unto death, but it is for the glory of God. But he never says that directly to Martha that we have record of. He says in verses 23 to 27 that he is the resurrection and the life as he interacts with Martha over this issue. But what a strange thing in this moment when death is permeating the reality of Martha's existence for him to say, believe in me and you will see the glory of God. Of God. He's obviously equating the raising of Lazarus, which is about to happen, with the glory of God. And he promises that Martha will see it if she believes. And friend, that's exactly what happened. You know the story. Lazarus is raised, he comes out of the tomb, and all who believe are given unending, irrefutable proof 
that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And God is glorified because he has sent the one who overcomes death for us. But as we close, I want to help you not miss the lesson of this text as it touches on your own grief. The glory came after the grave. Seeing the glory of Christ came after the grave, not in spite of the grave. It's quite simple, really. Would the the greatness and the majesty of Christ's power have been as obvious as it was in John 11, apart from the, the depth and the darkness of sin's effect in death? Would you know by the end of chapter 11, with confident assurance that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior of all who believe in him and overcome sin and death and hell, if you did not see Lazarus dead in the tomb for four days and have Jesus speak into his death, Lazarus come out and he came out, returned and restored to life. Friend, when is it that you see the majesty of the stars displayed above us? Is it during the daytime when Our bright solar system's star shines upon us, warms our face and lights up our world. Can you look into the sky when our sun is out and and see the other millions, nay, I say billions of stars above us that shine much brighter than our own star but are much farther away? Do you see them when the sun's out? No, you don't see them until it turns to night, until our sun has set Did those lights stop shining during the daytime? Does God have them set on a timer? When it's daytime in America, they're turned off over us. When it turns nighttime, they come back on like those wonderful timers you have in your house when you're on vacation. Of course not. They are always shining. They're just seen when there's no other light dominating the scene. How much more than when you traverse up some mountain somewhere And night falls upon you and there's no light pollution of city landscape around you. And what is the first thing that drops your jaw in amazement? The glory of the light above you. It has always been there. But you did not see it until it was pitch black and totally dark. Surely you see the connection. I hardly need to make it. The blackness and the darkness of the trials and the afflictions of life in the sin-cursed world are the backdrop against which God displays the brightness of his glory. And there are times when, like what he does in John 11, he allows for the sky to grow really dark in your world so that the brightness of his glory will be all the more realized. Either in this life or, praise God, in the life to come. Because there's coming a day when God's going to gather all of his suffering and deceased saints together in one body. And he's going to say to the grave, let them out. And he's going to say, unbind them and let them go free. And like Lazarus did for the rest of his life, we will do for the rest of eternity. We will be bold, bright witnesses of a God who overpowers death. And it will all be to the praise of his glory. And you will sing a full-throated song from the bottom of your toes all the way up to the top of your skull in your eternal glorified body of praise to God. And you know what will inform that song of praise in eternity? The afflictions of life in this sin-cursed world. Having experienced how awful they are here, you will rejoice there that they are gone forever and ever and ever. Praise be to his name. May it be today. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for the glory of Christ who overpowers death, overcomes it, and gives us eternal life. Thank you for the hope we have in the face of our greatest sorrows and trials and troubles. 
And thank you, Father, for preparing us for an eternity of seeing, recognizing, and witnessing the reality of your glory. Help us to patiently persevere. By your kindness, would you help us to suffer well? When the sky grows dark, Father, would you help us to trust you? Would you sustain us and keep us, knowing that if it were up to us, we would fall away? Father, would you hold us fast? And may that in itself be another reason to give you eternal praise. Thank you, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we sing our response to God's word, I want to just invite those of you who enjoy singing together in choir to join us in the music room right after the worship service for a very brief rehearsal. We're going to be singing two Sundays from today. If you are planning on helping with the VBS, you will be able to go directly from the rehearsal to that help. In response to God's glorious power to give life, let us sing together Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. the service there are several that are joining uh, Amy to set up the rest of the things for VBS so if you're able to help please see Amy outside of the church office and get that done and knocked out quickly thank you so much for praying for Vacation Bible School uh, in the week to come uh, also we have a Utah missions trip meeting to remind those of you who are planning to be there that'll be in the conference room about 10 minutes after the service if you're visiting with us today it's been a joy to have you hopefully we'll get the chance to greet you um, before you leave today thank you for joining us in Revelation 21, John sees the vision of the new Jerusalem coming out and descending upon the new earth. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Praise be to God that that is true. God's grace to you. You're dismissed. Mm-hmm.